todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to Patty Quattro, guitarist of a pioneering all-female rock group, Fanny. She joined in 1974 after founding member June Millington left the band. I had June on the podcast last year to talk about the documentary, Fanny, The Right to Rock, when it was out in theaters. Now it's brand new to streaming, and I'd love to get Patty's take. So without further delay, let's get her on the phone. Hello, Patty, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Glad to be here. Well, I saw a fairly recent Q&A that you did uh, with Brie, uh, stating that one of your major inspirations as a young guitarist was Jeff Beck, R.I.P. Jeff, uh, and basically that you didn't see any female guitarist at all when you were starting out. So what gave you the gumption to be that example for the next generation of young ladies? Well, my epiphany started in 1964 at a Beatles concert. I was watching the entire audience crying and screaming, and it just hit me differently. I went home and called my two girlfriends, who was a keyboardist and a drummer, because we'd been jamming around with the homeboys in Detroit. And I told them, hey, we're going to start an all-girl band. And we rounded up the two younger sisters, Susie and Mary Lou, and that filled out the band. And then two weeks later, we dared a huge teen club owner to put us on stage, you know, all bravado, of course. We said, oh, we're better than them. We didn't know anything but like three songs. So he said, you're on two weeks later. And we took the stage with our three songs. And that was the beginning. And then we had a single on his label at 14 and 16 years old. And that song, What a Way to Die, has been in TV indie movies, a horror feature film. It's just real well known as the earliest punk rock garage song from girls. Go figure. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what? It's kind of a little surprising. Like when you start to type in your name into Google, the almighty Google, 
Uh, it's, uh -huh. you know, it says like, it, it, are Patty and Susie Quattro related? <laughs> so yes, <laughs> yes, indeed they are. Uh, so, but uh, in fact, I bet a lot of people don't know that you came from a music business family. So can you give us a brief rundown on that? Oh, it was amazing. I was blessed, first of all, to be born in Detroit Rock City, which has decades of legacy of music, mainly because everybody was separated into their nationality neighborhoods and everybody wanted to avoid the car factories. So we would get together and jam all of us. And my dad was a big band leader. So he was all over the Midwest and Michigan. And my brother was a child TV star on Lawrence Welk, a keyboard genius at 15. Uh -huh. So he became, he came back from Lawrence Welk and became a promoter. And he, he was like the Bill Graham of the Midwest. He put on 300 festivals and he, uh, oh my gosh, he just, you couldn't stop him. He managed all those homeboys, Alice and, and Nugent and Iggy and Glenn, everybody. And we were starting our band, so we would get on his festivals too. He had 300 festivals and he brought in Hendrix and Rolling Stones the first time. He, he broke that area wide open. So I had quite an upbringing, very musical family, and they're real recognized because we're all in music. And uh, we were lucky because my dad nourished us with uh, keyboard lessons and vocals. And then we started taking other musical, you know, lessons on our own. I shoved the bass in Susie's hand because dad had one. I said, you're going to play bass. And she was pretty pissed. She wanted to play drums, but my friend already had drums. So, so that was how it all sort of started with a lot of involvement and passion from my dad being passed to us in That's our fantastic. DNA. Yeah. Well, your first Fanny album, Rock and Roll Survivors, was released by Casablanca Records, um, which I find especially interesting because I just finished reading Larry Harris's autobiography. And also I had a uh, Neil Bogart's son on this podcast talking about his new movie. Um, oh so God. yeah. So what was it like being on that Maverick label? I mean, it was just a, a, a party every day, apparently. <laughs> it was. I've talked to Larry through the years. He's so funny. He's um, hilarious. I loved him. Oh, book. I love him. I love Larry. And we were pretty close back in those days. And uh, I mean, we loved going to the office. He had that crazy big camel there and he was a maverick you know he, he he was just on the edge really wanting to support people that maybe were a little different whatever so here comes this girl band and he was friends with our manager Roy Silver so he was full on behind Fanny <laughs> um it was great. We had a lot of support from him. So it, I, I, yeah, I love being on the label. We hung out there a lot at the offices because it was right in LA and that's where we were. I mean, Kiss was around a lot and, you know, just, it was fun. It was a, it was a party every day. <laughs> Whenever we would show up. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, have you, um, I mean, I imagine or I know that the music business has changed quite dramatically in, in labels and how music is packaged and released. And there's uh, artists have taken a lot of control over their own careers now. Um, what are the different pros and cons of that, do you think, now? Hmm. 
Well, something I hate is how you can auto-tune your voice. I mean, people doing their own productions and stuff. To me, I mean, growing up in Detroit, you left it on the stage or you went the hell home. I can't tell you. I mean, Roger and uh, The Who and Kiss, they had to break their album in Detroit or it wasn't going to happen. They were going to get dropped, huh. which a lot of people don't know. But I mean, you know, it was like do or die time when you came to Detroit. As far as bands and how they package, um, I think it's great that they have more control. The The business has changed so much. I think it's ultimately tougher now uh, to try to make it because a lot of the money has changed and stuff. I had uh, one person that I was dealing with on our retro stuff tell me, yeah, some of these older bands walk in and like they're a legend in their own mind. And they want <laughs> And they want the same money and the same everything, and they're just not going to get it. You know, they're older. But I mean, I'm older and wiser, and I love that we're having this chance to uh, tour and do this little mini tour thing. It's it's like the cherry on top. You know, you you don't lose it. And it's so exciting to go out and do this. It's It's just really fun. And it's the first time we've ever been able to play all together, which is pretty amazing 50 years later that is really fantastic and I feel like the documentary really brings that home um I'm wondering how has your view of Fanny as a band changed not only with the perspective of years but also with reviews and reactions to the documentary oh boy well this is a book uh -huh. <laughs> I mean the the film focuses on one angle you know when you're a producer you have to pick your hot button, what you're going to do. And Bobby picked racism and and them being gay. Mm -hmm. And it worked for her. It's an amazing product. But honestly, I don't like to whine or moan about sexism, racism, homophobia, any of that. You know, the stages of music are littered with bands that didn't quite break through for one reason or another. Of course, some of that existed, but my God, four albums later and Warner Brothers supported and it didn't happen for, for them. Mostly, you know, because we were ahead of our time, to be frank about it. None of us did gender. It wasn't a, even a concern. We just had a passion to play and we did. So my, you know, it's like uh, you have to pick what you're going to do your angle on and all of our stories, Breeze and mine included, it's like an analogy, this, this uh, tour and the album and how I feel about Fanny. We all lived the same journey, just in different cities, etc. There is so much legacy and history to all of us. And Bobby had, you know, she had an hour and a half. She had to choose certain things. But there's a lot that isn't in it. You know, I wish it had been rounded out a little, but you can't change that. You know, producers have to go with what they think is their best angle. And she did a great job on it. She did. Um, now, did uh, Bobby collaborate with you or ask you for input? I mean, I realize that the final product is only an hour and a half and probably a lot wound up on the cutting room floor, as they say. Um, is there something else you think that, could have been added or I mean maybe talk about that a little bit did you is there an interview that you know of that didn't make it in that with you or yeah um 
some of the extended story would have been great because I mean, good God, you know, when, when I joined them, June had left and she found me and we put it together. And Nikki told me, you know, I've been wanting to rock harder for so damn long. And Jean too, she didn't want to stop because her sister was leaving. So it was such a positive um ambition to come there and they felt I brought a Detroit edge which you know I just play heavy I'm Detroit you did so, yes oh yeah I'm not into that all the soft stuff I mean you better you know my foot is on the gas all the time <laughs> you know and I was really happy to be able to contribute in a new direction and Nikki or Nikki and Jean were happier the press was so positive and it was horrible when it ended that didn't get in the film but it was very sad the timing Nikki Nikki got, we weren't making any money for one thing. Uh, the managers, they just thought, you know, well, we're just going to, you know, put them out there and do it. And the, the touring was great. We had great press. It was moving along. Then Nikki got wined and dined to do a solo album. And mm. there was a little bit of tension going on because Gene and I, you know, when you're with sisters, I'll say this. And I've told, I've talked about this with Gene. When you're with sisters, there's this inherent harmony thing that you just, your harmonies are just second nature. And you sort of, to me, it's a rounding out when you get to play with other people. To me, even though I had amazing years with Susie, love her to death, and Jean with June too, it was an amazing difference to be able to play with each other. We, we got up front, we became more front people. The stage thing was great. David Bowie loved us. I mean, he would come and say, oh, my God. And then he put input into our costumes. And you can't buy that, that rounding out. And that's what I thought the, the second incarnation of Fanny brought forward. It was just moving in a more uh, stage influence direction where we were up there just playing off each other with our guitars and bass. And that was amazing. I loved that. Yeah, I like that too. In the documentary, it does bring up that David Bowie was a champion for uh, Fanny. And that's one of the things that I love about Bowie was that he really stood up and talked about and championed uh, bands that may have been lesser known or, um, you know, like in the early 80s, he gave an interview with MTV kind of telling them, you know, you should feature more black artists. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was yeah. really, really a, a a very great guy for like bringing up rights for artists of of uh, either minorities or lesser voices. Um, and as you mentioned, the documentary does hone in on maybe the more negative aspects of the things in the seventies, um, like the sexism racism homophobia but um oh. there's also there is a lot of celebratory and positive moments and the milestones yeah. um so what are some of your favorite moments or memories that are seen in the film that people can enjoy when it's uh, streaming well i'm all about putting the light on not just fanny because we were one group that got lucky and had a lot of success but there were a lot of very good women musicians around at the time. And of course, the, the film concentrates on that. But what, one of my best things was I loved when 
a few of the women who definitely lived the same journey as we did came together in the film for that Fanny Walk the Earth song. I called Kathy Valentine and Genya and Cherie and got them to sing on it. And then Brie called some others and it became like an anthem, which I love. It sort of said in the lyric, it was called When We Need Her. And it's all about the journey that we all shared. And it could stand up forever as a call for any woman to follow your passion, no matter what it is. We had a blast doing that song in the studio. It was a very good memory from the film. Yeah, that feels, that's like a kind of that moment where your goosebumps kind of come to the skin and you're like, yeah. yes, this is what it's all about. That's right. That's right. Yep. And you have not only that wonderful uh, performance, but you've got some great interviewees to give an outside perspective on Fanny, like Cherie, she's in there, Bonnie Raitt, Todd Rundgren. Um, who else is in it? And did anyone say anything that kind of surprised you or maybe you didn't expect them to say? Oh, I love this. At the end, I absolutely, Def Leppard, it happens to be one of my favorite groups. I mean, every song I put on, I just love. <laughs> and, and Joe Elliott said at the end, picking up a Fanny record and it's, spoke of respect he's he said get it you know I mean he said something about go buy this find it and it was just total respect I loved it very cool thing that he said right at the and a lot of people don't even see it the, the credits start rolling ah. and then they bring them <laughs> on after the credits it's like a tag thing and I couldn't believe it I said that should have been before the credits <laughs> well, it was such a cool thing because some people are walking out by then you know <laughs> yeah yeah Joe Elliott is another person who like David Bowie really gives props where they're deserved and he's so grateful for those who you know, trailblazed and, and who've inspired him. So he's a great one to have in the documentary as well. Oh, um, David, David was the most kind, compassionate guy. He always told us he would come and see us and he'd say, always make an entrance. That was his <laughs> that's, <right>. that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I was just looking at his video the other day when he uh, came, he was on Saturday Night Live and he was carried on to the stage with that big artistic suit yes what a, oh god what a what a art artistic human being he was oh he yeah. was he was just unbelievable yeah I got to see that uh David Bowie is exhibit in London and I was just blown away oh he he was one of a kind you know one of those ones that you I mean there's just a few like that that you just oh my god they're just gone too soon they're yeah. just so many gifts Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, so what keeps you excited and motivated creatively these days? Well, I'm still doing, um, I mean, you know, part of the legacy that didn't get touched on in the movie is my retro stuff, which has been on the best loved and you know all that for like 10 years now. I've been selling my songs to indie films and and uh, movies and compilations, you know, they love discovering stuff that wasn't out there a lot. And my, rep, you know, Pleasure Seekers and Cradle, my sister bands with Susie, they were, were in the Hall of Fame in Detroit Mich and Michigan. And, and geez, there's like 13 books that I'm in. People love documenting the musical history of women. It's exciting because people want to know. So it's exciting that this has come about. 
you know, for the fanny thing. And I'm going to be doing an extended broadcast podcast thing after I get past the mini tour. And it's going to be on female musicians and music through history and today, as well as my journey. I have so much to contribute and it should be a lot of fun because I love talking about the journeys and experiences that I've had. Oh, there's in the stories, the funny stories. My God, we played 300 festivals in the early days. I have so many stories. Ooh, I will definitely be listening to that podcast. Oh, funny and dramatic, all types. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm an independent filmmaker, and I know a lot of independent filmmakers, so I think it's great that you mentioned that you have songs available for us because um, it's hard to find authentic-sounding songs for period pieces when someone tries to recreate it, it's just not the same. So that's good to know. You know, that's true. I've had so many people, my agent in LA, he says, you know, you have no idea the trend right now looking for authentic, raw energy, etc. And ours were recorded on a two track machine with the MC5 on New Year's Eve. Oh, wow. And they were saved and they, they've been brought back, you know, so these are the ones, the two group, and they just keep selling. He keeps placing them. I'm just, it's like, I just sit here at my desk and here's another one. Here's another <laughs> placement. It's Fantastic. fun. Yeah, it's great. All right. Well, I know you like to keep positive, so maybe we can make this funny, but this is the question that I always close with. What is oh your God. own personal rock and roll nightmare? <laughs> Oh, nightmare or funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> you have no idea. I have so many. Um, a trivia. Um, let's see. The 1967 Detroit riots, right? Okay. Chuck Berry. We're on stage in Buffalo. My dad drove us out of the uh, Detroit area quickly. We got to the gig. And there's Chuck in the in the dressing room, fiddling around just about laying on top of our drummer, right? Uh Uh-huh. My dad walks in. He looks like a mafiosa guy. (laughs) And he looks at Chuck. He said, what the hell are you doing? And that really was the night Chuck turned white. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It was pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Yeah, there, there's a lot of scary stories that happened while we were on the road and stuff. I mean, we were young teenagers. Oh, God, we had we were with ABC, uh, who only handled we ha- were handled by the president. And he only handled the pleasure seekers, Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday. And, wow. we were, and we were playing at a club in New Jersey. And these mafia guys came in and picking us off, you know, oh, I'm going to have that one and that one and that one. And our manager got us out of there somehow. They destroyed the bar, completely destroyed it, put the owner in the hospital. And the next day, our agent, George Glazier, who was the president of ABC, he said, don't worry, those guys will never bother anyone again. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds sounds Whoa. like he, he was a man of his word. Oh my god! Well, he was involved. ABC was a huge booking agency, but they had mafia ties too. Wow, that's <laughs> odd. Yeah, wow. Well, I like I said, I'll be listening to your podcast for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, where will people people be able to um, 
hear that. I know it's not start launched yet, but do you have a website or something that people can pop into? I, to find I will, out? Yeah. Yeah. I will post it on the rock and roll survivors website. Okay. Um, and it's on my Facebook pages, you know, and Brie has it listed too. Her and I both run it. And I'll, I'll, when it opens, you know, I'll let people know. Definitely. I'll be putting it on my Facebook and on all my pages because I have pages for Cradle, Pleasure Seekers, and Fanny. So Sweet. it'll be listed. All right. Well, of, where can people watch Fanny the Right to Rock? You know, it's uh, going to stream, as I understand it. We're still getting information every day. But the guy that's doing the L.A. tour, he's got it streaming in 51 cities so far. And it could be way up from that now while we're on tour. And there's going to be a live stream from the Whiskey when Ooh, we play there. Perfect. Yeah. So, I mean... I would check back with Don because he can give you the list and give you more info. He's, you know, they're still developing. We got another week and he's like a energizer bunny. <laughs> okay, great. Well, anybody listening can check with Patty on her Facebook page or the rock and roll nightmares, Facebook page to there you go. check out Fanny, the right to rock. Well, thank you, Patty. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Have a good one. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. In fact, Patty's sister, Susie, has a recipe in the newest book, Rock Tales, which features fun cocktails and mocktails and helps to benefit the Sweet Relief Musicians Fund. You can get it in paperback at Amazon or in their Kindle store. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>